Blog Talk Radio. Hi there. I'm Mary Eileen Williams at Feisty Side of 50 Radio, and this show is a celebration of baby boomers who are embracing life as we grow older. And we know that one of the best ways to do that is to fall under the spell of a gripping story of mayhem and murder. But that gets even better if it's a true crime story that marks a definitive time in our generation. Yes, I am talking about the Manson murders, and that will bring us to our guest today. Ivor Davis is a legendary reporter and author who has covered and personally witnessed some of the most heralded events of our lifetime. His credentials and experiences are really way too far to numerous and mentioned in this intro, but suffice it to say, this guy has seen it all. He's traveled with the Beatles when they made their first tour of America, he's interviewed the biggest names in show business, and he got up close and personal with the Manson Gang at Spawn Ranch. So Ivar has enjoyed an unparalleled access to our generation's biggest names. His latest book is entitled Manson Exposed, a reporter's 50-year journey into madness and murder. Boy, is this a topic we all want to hear about. So without further ado, welcome, Ivar. Thank you for having me, Eileen. And um, I love to be part of the feisty side of 50 because that's where I'm going to stay. (laughs) Me too. And also, uh, I like to claim um, I'm way beyond the feisty side of 50. I will just confess it to you, Ivor. But I like to say I am in um, late middle age. (laughs) It's just a secret between the two of us. Just the secret between the two of us, absolutely. Well, uh, talk about secrets, uh, and I do want to get into this amazing book because whether they were secrets to me, and I'd mentioned before we went on air, I thought I knew it all about the Manson story and all the people involved because I've seen a number of programs, but uh uh-uh. This book brings up so many new facts. It is so enlightening and so many uh aha moments. I want to get to it in a minute, but Ivor, I would like to start out with your personal history, because boy, talk about enlightening and aha, you have led some heck of a life. So tell us a little bit about your early days as a correspondent for the London Daily Express. Well, I was just very lucky because they sent me to America, to the West Coast, in the early 60s, and the 60s was a a, a decade of unbelievable stories. And so... um, I, I hit the ground running, and there was movie movie stars getting divorced. Uh, there was there were political stories. There was the, this group, a rock and roll group. Uh, I forget their name from Liverpool, who I travelled <laughs> with in 1964. Some I'm sure some of your listeners may remember uh, Beatles. That was it. Um, and so there I was uh, with my ticket to ride with the Beatles. An incredible journey that was, and I must say. Even 50-odd years later, um, I'm still amazed. Um, my only problem was I wish um, at the time that I'd taken my iPhone camera with me when I traveled with the Beatles because, uh. because I would have taken a lot more pictures. But, so I got to do political stories. I was in the kitchen, unfortunately, when Bobby Kennedy in 1968 got shot. He was, was uh. going to go on to become president, as, as most of the world knows. And then after the Bobby Kennedy uh, assassination, I ran into, well, I I covered day one 
of this horrible sequence that went on for 50 years about the murder of Sharon Tate and her friends, which even today uh, brings horrible gasps from people who know a little about it, know a lot about it, and, and, and it's such a Byzantine story that goes into different, different directions. Uh, um, I wish we had three hours to cover it because, Eileen, we would need three hours. But anyway, you go ahead. You ask the question. So that's, I was on the spot on the first day of the murders, and it took me on a, a, a circuitous path 50 years um, ago. Well, and actually, I am, as I said, I'm so interested in starting about talking about some of the securitous path that you were on and, and everything that happened. But I do want to make one quick confession before we do that, and that is uh, uh, talking about murder. Uh, I am a former Beatle maniac, and I might have killed you for for your spot in that in that journey with them on the first uh, tour of America. Because boy, oh boy, did we were we passionate back then about that uh, group of uh, musicians. You kind of forgot their name for a moment, but uh, yes, I didn't. Yes. So well, just wanted well, to tell you, know, you I, that. Yeah, I must interrupt you for a second. Are you telling me that you saw the Beatles back then? I did not on the first tour, but I was actually at the last. Uh, I, I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I was at their last performance at yes, at Golden Gate Park. I was there. I mean, not at Golden Gate Park, but um, now it's. I'm so excited. It's, the name has this. Oh, the Cow Palace. I think was their last oh, yes, one, yeah, that was it, or last, maybe that, that was, was their very anyway. Last concert. And I want to tell you something, Eileen. Now that you mention it, I was there as well because it was the last concert, and I think you were the one and correct me if I'm wrong, who was screaming louder than anyone else. And did you You recognize me, Ivor, after all these years. Yes, I remember, because I think it was you that said, Paul loves me. And and I said, uh, how do you know Paul loves you? And you said (laughs) that he waved to me in the crowd. He waved back at me. I I mean, was that you? That actually was me. I, I, I'm just so thrilled that we have yes. found my, one oh another God. after all these years. <laughs> yes, well, there you go. There you go. Well, Paul now is taken, I'm afraid. He's married to Nancy Chevelle, a lovely lady. And funny enough, I met Paul and Nancy a month ago. And Paul is as gracious as he ever was. Uh, he's, he's richer than he was back then. But, you know, that's another story. But it's amazing. And the scary thing is, Eileen, and you know this, and some of your listeners may know this, that you go to bed when you're 21 and then you wake up uh, several decades later and you think, oh, my gosh, where did it go? Absolutely. Well, now you have re- reignited my love for Paul. I don't know how you recognized me and knew that it, that was I, the, uh, <laughs> the one screaming yes, the loudest. Afraid, so you but, gave yourself away with all the screaming nonstop. In fact, you were screaming <laughs> so much that I could hardly hear the music. Sorry about that. Well, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> well, speaking of screaming, we have more screams to talk about, although we're going to refocus these screams a little bit because yes. I really am so eager to share with our listeners all of the information. I, we won't be able to do that. We would need three hours, but at least some of the highlights of the things that I hadn't realized. Now, you were down there. You had mentioned that you got uh, that your um, publishers called you immediately and said there was a murder. Get over there. So I'm going to let you take it from here.
here. What was it like when you arrived at Cielo Drive, and what were those first few hours like? The, the first few hours were insane because we knew murder had been committed, but the police were not telling us anything. And, and there was me and about 30 television, radio, media, print reporters outside the gate, but we could actually see through the, uh, through the wire gate and we could see bodies on the lawn covered by sheets and we knew something terrible had happened. And then as I stood there, the police came from time to time and revealed who the victims were. And, of course, they, when they said Sharon Tate, uh, 28 or thereabouts, pregnant, eight and a half months, was a victim. I mean, it was just, it was like a cold, horrible chill. And Jay Sebring was this hairdresser to the movie stars, uh, Paul Newman and Steve McQueen and people like that. He cut their hair. He was a friend, a close friend of Sharon. And then there was Wojtok Frakowski, who was a friend of Sharon's husband, uh, Roman Polanski, and also Abigail Folger, who was the coffee heiress from San Francisco. She was murdered. And unfortunately, an 18-year-old young man who was in the wrong place at the wrong time, who was sitting in a car about to leave the Cielo Drive murder scene when he was shot dead by Charles Tex Watson. So for the hours after we, we were arrived at the, at the house, we finally learned the names and the identities of the unfortunate victims. But we still didn't know who was guilty and who wasn't guilty. And then if I may just jump ahead almost 24 hours, another murder, a similar murder, uh, brutally stabbing, of Lino and Rosemary LaBianca 15 miles away from the Cielo Drive house. What was scary, if I may just add, Eileen, what was scary was that these murders took place in quiet, respectable, safe neighborhoods, safe at least until that moment that, we, that I arrived there and discovered that there was bloodshed everywhere. So people were terrified. Hollywood was scared. Hollywood was wondering if there's a gang of people out to kill celebrities. And Hollywood went into a collective uh, panic attack, if you like, and bought guns and guard, guard dogs and 24-hour guards. So it was a, 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 a few days of, of bedlam and uncertainty because, don't forget, they never got the killers until four months later. Oh, my gosh, this is so fascinating. And I, I can imagine the time was just, like you say, things would have been so, uh, you know, different from, you know, the 60s, you know, love, peace, rock, out, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll to something as bad yeah. and, and as horrifying as these murders. But yeah, I, but I, I, I do want to let just, people just, know, too. Yeah, let me just throw something into that. Something you said a moment ago was very important. It was sex, drugs, rock and roll. It was... It was no security gates. It was, it was free and easy. It was a period when probably, I don't know about you, but I picked up hitchhikers, anybody, strangers. Well, that ended, that ended with the murder, uh, of the Manson murders and the murder of Sharon Tate. So there we were sitting outside the house, not having a clue about who was responsible for these awful, awful killings. 
Well, I've got you, and I'm going to jump ahead because I think it's really uh, important and fascinating for our listeners to know you actually, this is not your first book on the Manson murders. You actually did write the first book on the Manson murders. It was called Five to Die, and I understand that Vincent Bugliosi used your book when he was preparing for his case. So tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, well, I didn't discover this until after I covered the trial, but here's what happened. Um, as soon as Manson was arrested, I went to the Spahn movie ranch and I heard this absolutely outrageous story about Manson, his, his, uh, the way he mesmerized all the young women, and how he used Beatles music from the, from the album Helter Skelter to um, brainwash him into believing that the Beatles were giving him these secret messages about uh, about a, a race war, and Manson was going to escape the race war. So there I was, um, hearing this unbelievable story, which I still today don't believe, and then I sat down and wrote a very fast book, as you mentioned, Five to Die. The book came out about two months before the trial, and when we were in pre-trial hearings, um, Irving Kinerick, who was a lawyer representing Charles Manson, raced into the court with my book and said to the judge, we want to change your venue. This book has, uh, will, get, will not enable us to have a fair trial. The judge looked at my book and said, uh, motion denied. The trial is going to take place in Los Angeles, and it did. And then years later, to, to get to your key question, years later, I discovered from one of the deputy district attorneys who started on the case and then got kicked off the case that, Vincent Bugliosi, the prosecutor, had used the Beatles made me do it by their lyrics as the key blueprint for his prosecution. I mean, I don't think the lyrics really did cause the murders, but I think Vincent Bugliosi ran with it and he was successful. I mean, he got Manson convicted and the girls convicted based on the helter-skelter theory. And to be honest with you, if he'd gone with another theory, maybe he would have not convicted Manson, who, after all, never went to the Cielo Drive murder scene, although he went to the La Bianca murder scene. But Manson always said, I never killed no one. And I'm not so sure about that, but that was his, that was his clarion call. And, of course, uh, they got the jury to convict and to send Manson and the girls to the uh, gas chamber, but then, of course, in 1971, the death penalty in California was abolished. Manson became more famous, and that's why we're talking about him today, because, to be honest with you, Eileen, if Charles Manson had been executed in 1971, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation, and I probably wouldn't have written a book. Wow, I never thought about that, but I'm sure there is some truth to that. Uh, but now, Eve, I've, I'm sorry, uh, what, tell us a little bit about, since you did, already wrote a book about it, you already knew the facts, what made you want to revisit this story and bring in any, all these additional pieces of information? What made you want to write Manson Exposed? Well, here's what happened. I was visiting my daughter in Seattle, Washington. And she was having the, ki the kitchen remodeled. And uh, during a break, I had a cup of coffee with the two young men who were remodeling the kitchen. They were in their early 30s. And we started talking about crime. 
And I said to them, by the way, I'm talking about crime, do you know who Charles Manson is? And one of them said, wasn't he the guy that made everybody drink Kool-Aid? I said, no, that's a different guy. That's uh, Jim Jones. <laughs> and the other guy said, oh, Manson, yeah, he was the guy that was railroaded by the police. Uh, Manson wanted clean air and clean environment, and they, they, they actually arrested him, and they convicted him of murders he never convicted. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, these young men in their 30s, early 30s, have no idea whatsoever who Manson is and why he, he went to prison. Um, so I thought, I know so much about it. I was there from day one. I, I, I went to the Spahn movie ranch. I covered the trial. I've interviewed the key people in, the, in this um, long half-century story. So I've got to write a new book so that young people will see it and realize that Manson was not an innocent. Well, and, and two, for those of us, again, like I am, who, again, thought we knew the, the facts of the case, and in broad strokes, I do, but I would just like to cover just a, just a few, very few of the amazing surprises that your book had for me, so that people I know that are really going to want to get their hands on this one, because it is fascinating. First thing that really surprised me were the number of Hollywood people who claimed that they'd been invited to the Tate Polanski house uh, and um, especially like Steve McQueen what is the story about Steve McQueen uh, well, being invited Steve, actually Steve that McQueen. night for dinner I thought that was fascinating yes well I must tell you Eileen that, that when I started doing the new book I, I interviewed many people who claimed, claimed they were on <clears> their <throat> way to see Sharon Tate the night of the murders and for several reasons that they told me they never made it, which was kind of cynically, um, I, I sort of listened to these stories with some cynicism, but Steve McQueen's story was an interesting one, and he said that he was uh, close to J.C. Bring because J.C. Bring cut his hair. He was very fond of Sharon because he wanted Sharon to start with him in several of his movies. It never happened. And so on the night of the murders, he got on his motorcycle, and off he went, to Cielo Drive, but on the way, and this is his story, he picked up a young maiden who was hitchhiking, and they got into <laughs> a conversation, and Steve, being the kind of guy he was, took pity on the young woman and took her to a local motel, and they spent the night together. So that was his <laughs> story, and, 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 and Steve said, um, with a little bit of uh, sense of humor, that this was his great escape. So that was Steve. Um, and then I spoke to other people, uh, Dennis Hopper, uh, who said he also was on his way to see Sharon and then went to the Daisy Nightclub. And also there was John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas. And John Phillips, of course, is, is, is dead now, but his friend, Michael Sarn, who I uh, met several times, was a film director. And Michael Sarn said, we set out one that evening to see Sharon, we went to a Japanese restaurant in Los Angeles. We all got rolling over drunk. We were in no state to visit Sharon, and we managed to stagger back to Malibu Colony, and we missed going to the house. And there, and, and there were so many other stories, and I, I, I listened to them with a little, a little bit of cynicism, but 
I don't know. I mean, if, if everybody who said they were going to the house on the night of the murders had gone, the death toll would have been over 20. Uh, I mean, I say that, oh and I think gosh. it's a little bit exaggerated, but that's the story on that. Well, that that is one fact I had no idea. Another that, uh, again, surprised me, we all know that Dennis Wilson met Charles Manson. I mean, we, I don't mean we all, but anybody who's interested in the story knew about that one. But your book brought out that Neil Young also met him, thought he was brilliant, a frustrated artist, but a little intense, which I thought, oh, my gosh. Yes. Yeah, well, um, the interesting little twist is that that Charles Manson came out of prison wanted to be a rock and roll star and he decided to look around and see how he could achieve this I mean he did write music he did write songs and somehow and here's how it happened two of his young acolytes living on the spa movie ranch were picked up by Dennis Wilson the drummer of the Beach Boys and Dennis who had an eye for the ladies and an eye for drugs and an eye for alcohol um, started talking to them and they said we have a guru named Charlie and he said I've got a guru named the Maharishi and they hit it off and Dennis Wilson being such a hospitable guy took the girls to his house and said you can hang out here and I'll be back I'll be back from the recording studio one or two in the morning and Dennis Wilson left the girls at his mansion on Sunset Boulevard, and when he came back at two in the morning, he was greeted at the front door by this puny-looking guy named Charlie Manson. And he looked at Manson, and and, Man, and, and he said to Manson, uh, "Oh, who are you? And are you going to uh, are you going to harm me?" And Manson very cleverly kneeled down and kissed Dennis Wilson's feet. And from then on, they oh were bosom buddies. And they actually moved in, would you believe? Charlie Manson and his girls moved into Dennis Wilson's mansion and provided drugs, uh, all the sex that Dennis wanted, and they took over his house and were, were finally, about six months later, evicted when Dennis Wilson realized he was never going to get rid of Charlie Manson. So that was the connection. But the other one key thing I must tell you, Eileen, is this, that thanks to Dennis Wilson, Charles Manson met Neil Young, the rock and rollers. He met the he met many of the other Beach Boys like Mike Love. He met he met so many rock and rollers who came to Dennis Wilson's house, and Dennis Wilson allowed Manson to perform for these rock and roll people. And Manson loved it because he then had the eye of people like again members of the Mamas and the Papas, Cass Elliot and also Terry Melcher, Terry Melcher, the son of Doris Day, who was a record producer, a great successful record producer, who decided that he thought that Manson could possibly be his new recording star. That story, of course, uh, collapsed, and, uh, and, and Manson never became a rock and roll star, although he became more famous than anyone in the history of, of crime in the 20th century. Absolutely, and Ivor, we've oh, we've got about five minutes left before we have to close. Up. There's so much I want to ask you. I'd love to have you back again if you'd ever consider it. But first, before we leave, I have to ask you: not only did you do all this research and everything, but you also asked 
both John Lennon and Paul McCartney, your buddies, and, my, of course, my buddies, too. But uh, you asked them what their thoughts are about Manson claiming that Helter Skelter was a sign for him to initiate a race war. Can you, in just a couple minutes, tell us about that? Yes, of course. Well, because I knew John and I knew Paul, because in 1964, I, as, as you mentioned, I traveled with the Beatles on their first American tour and finished up with them in, in, in San Francisco at the concert where you were at. Um, so I spoke to John, who was at the time uh, living in L.A. with May Pang, uh, who was a, um, one, of the, one of the Yoko Ono's friends. John said, first of all, he didn't want to go there. And then he said to me when I told him I'd covered the trial, that this is the biggest load of old rubbish he'd ever heard. I mean, the idea of using lyrics from Beatles songs as a blueprint for murder was uh, insane. And so did yeah. Paul. He told me the same thing. Paul wrote Helter Skelter. And Paul said, listen to the lyrics of Helter Skelter. Nowhere, nowhere in the lyrics do I tell people to go out and kill or suggest a race war. Um, he said, Charles Manson is insane, and using our lyrics is disgusting. And they were both very, very upset that the Beatles' music was dragged into this awful, heinous series of murders. Well, Ivor, I, again, this book... <laughs> Each one of these facts leads to another one, to another inside and unknown uh, piece of information that most of us wouldn't have any idea about. So this, uh, I'm, I'm holding it in my hand right now, and I am a big fan of not only your book, but you as a person. It's been such a delight to interview you. Now, you also have a list of, you have a number of YouTube videos about the book. So where can people go to see YouTube you describing your book on YouTube? Yes, exactly, and you can actually get me on www.ivordavidsbooks.com. Everything you wanted to know about me and what we're afraid to ask. But thank you for having me, Eileen. It's been fun. And, and you can now stop. Well, it has been so people. much fun for me, too, although I've been very afraid to ask a lot of those questions. <laughs> no, I, it has been such a delight. I had huge expectations for this interview, and you fulfilled and surpassed everyone. So in the last minute or so, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? No, I think, I think your listeners should take a look at the, at the movie by Quentin Tarantino, which is a fairy story, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's called that that because it is a fairy story and it doesn't really tell you the truth, but I don't want to spoil it for anyone. Well, the truth is in your book. Go see the movie, Thank but you. do not forget to read the book and take a look at your website and some of these YouTube videos because you can tell your fascinating charm is very apparent in each one of them. And, Ivar, I want to thank you for your not only your time but your amazingly creative mind and sharing all about this fantastic book with us. Thank you for letting me be on the feisty side of 50. Lovely talking, Eileen. Lovely talking to you, too. And let me let you listeners out there know, grab this book. You are going to spend hours of really fascinating reading. Uh, I can tell you from personal experience, it is a page-turner, and you're going to want to know every juicy detail in this book. So until next time, this is Mary Eileen Williams at Feisty Side of 50 Radio, saying I'll catch you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>